0: Oh, Father, in the same way that we have humbly approached the cross for our salvation, we take our Bibles and we humbly open them. And we ask for you to instruct us, to grow us, to challenge us, to build us up in the faith. Father, we recognize ourselves to be weak at best, struggling, stammering folk who need to be strengthened. And so thank you for the joy that it always brings us to gather together as your church. Thank you for the refreshment of just the fellowship of believers. And Father, how meaningful the preaching and teaching of the Word is to us and how needed it is. So we ask you to bless this time and use it effectively, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I, um, I wonder if the phrase window of opportunity resonates with you at all. If you were to look up the word opportunity in the dictionary, it would say something like this. A favorable juncture of circumstances. Second part of the definition would be a good chance for advancement or progress. So a window of opportunity would be a time frame uh, that you can see where it opens up for you for advancement or development or an opportunity that is good. Let me give you a personal illustration uh, that might help us think about window of opportunity. It was um, in the winter of 1982 when I was a student at Appalachian Bible College, right about this time of year, on an unseasonably warm, beautiful, sunny February day, when uh, clearly only by the direction and the sovereign oversight of God, I found myself heading down to the library Um, to spend a Saturday morning studying on some uh, much-needed work that I was working, doing. And as I entered the library there at Appalachian Bible College, where I was doing my theological studies, I looked across the room, and there was the lovely Janet Parsons. And I thought to myself, I have a window of opportunity. So as I looked, I thought, I have, in this moment... A time of of favorable junction, a juncture of circumstances. I have a good chance for an advancement and progress. And so I spent much of the rest of the day strolling around the Alpine pond, getting to know Janet rather than studying. That was my window of opportunity here already almost 30 years later. She has been Janet Marceau. Um, and what a favorable way the Lord has looked upon that window of opportunity you have a time frame to act doesn 't stay open forever as we turn to Matthew chapter four this morning, I invite you to uh, put your eyes down on verse twelve that 's where our text will begin today if you 're newer to us or our guests today for the very first time, we certainly welcome you and You need to know that we're working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's the longest of all of the Gospels. And uh, Matthew was an eyewitness account, accountant of the, the deeds and the activities of our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew was, Mark was, John was, Luke was a researcher, Luke was a historian, he was a physician, he was a thinker, and he was not one of the disciples, but he, he worked hard at putting together an orderly account. And so we have our four perspectives brought to us. The gospel means good news, and they focus on the life and the ministry of our Lord Jesus We've been in Matthew for a number of weeks now already and what we've just completed in Matthew chapter 4 is the section where Jesus was in the wilderness to fast and pray and there he comes under temptation by the devil to step outside the will of God through the strengthening power of the Holy Spirit and through the quoting of Scripture Jesus rebukes the devil in verse 11 in chapter 4. You can see then that after he rebukes the devil with scripture, it says that the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Matthew then immediately jumps to the next phase of the gospel where he's giving an account of the life and ministry of Christ. And what you need to know is that essentially from verse 11 to verses, uh, excuse me, yeah, verse 11 to verses 12 and 13, that about one year goes by. That year is is the first year of the public ministry of our Lord Jesus. Mark and John give a little more insight as to what was happening in that first year. Now remember that Matthew is writing to a, a almost exclusively Jewish audience. He's writing to Jews, people who know the Old Testament, have studied the Old Testament. They know what the prophets have said. They believe that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They've studied it. In fact, many of them have memorized large portions of it. The Pharisees have memorized almost all of it, probably, word for word. They are experts in the Old Testament. They are experts in Jewish history, which is a lot of what comes from the Old Testament. They've been taught this stuff since they were children. And so Matthew is picking and choosing the things that he knows will be of most interest to his exclusively Jewish audience. And so sometimes he leaves some things out. Some things don't necessarily um, serve Matthew in his argument in presenting Jesus as the what in Matthew? Jesus is presented as the king, the Messiah, but as the king. Royalty is emphasized that he is the son of God and he's the king though. He's the king. And there's there's kind of an emphasis on that in Matthew's writing. So about a year goes by, in fact, some of the miracles that Jesus performed, remember his very first miracle? He was at a wedding, and he turned water into wine, remember that? Okay, that's one of the miracles that's not accounted for in Matthew that is given to us in the other Gospels, and that happened in that first year. You need to understand as you think about the life and ministry of Christ, it lasted about three years, so essentially Jesus is 30 years old. He now goes public with his ministry when he shows up at the Jordan, has John baptize him, is... The Holy Spirit comes upon him. He goes into the wilderness to be tested. And now this is the trigger. This is the launch pad for public ministry. The first year, we have sketchy accounts of that first of three years before he ends up back in Jerusalem going to the cross where he is buried three days in the tomb, rises again victorious over death, hell, and the grave. Forty days later, ascends up into heaven. So the first year, just a few sketchy accounts mostly in John and Mark, the second year it picks up, the third year more account, and the last week of his ministry is given significant amount of passage in the Gospels. So the longer we're, farther we go into the three-year ministry window of our Lord, the more we have recorded in the Gospels. Essentially, you can think of it that way. There are some things, for example, the Sermon on the Mount, as we know it, is coming up next in our passage very soon. And that probably happened earlier on in the ministry of our Lord. But this first year kind of slips by and Matthew doesn't pay a whole lot of attention to it. I want to use verses 12 through 17 for our text and I want you to notice that verse 18 begins a little section where Jesus will call his disciples who were fishermen and he challenges them to lay down their nets and to come and be fishers of men. I didn't plan it this way. You know that I'm not, I'm hardly capable of planning a sermon calendar and it, it just turns out that next sunday tom jesserin as he is our keynote speaker will continue through matthew on matthew 4:18 uh, through 22 on this passage of fishers of men and that's our theme for our missions conference isn't that amazing how that worked out that's really something And so our text today is verses 12 through 17. Let's read them. It's the kind of passage where if you are reading for your devotions through the Gospel of Matthew, you might kind of just breeze over it and not get so much out of it. But I want you to see that it has a lot to say about the launching of the public ministry of Christ. It also gives us some clues about that first year where he did most of his ministry for the first year of his public ministry. It says, now when he, that would be Jesus, heard that John, that's John the Baptist, who we just studied about in his baptism, now when he, Jesus, heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So over a year just went by in Matthew's account. This happened, this moving from Galilee to Nazareth, leaving there to Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, whoever they are and whatever that is, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, now we know him, Isaiah might be fulfilled. And here's a direct quote, verses 15 and 16 are a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 9. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I referenced this concept of a window of opportunity in our introduction. I want you to see how, as Jesus is presented here as the one who is the light that shines on the darkness of the world. And that's a theme that's going to come up again in Matthew, and we're going to spend some time talking about it. And in our New Testament, we see that Jesus is the light, and that the righteous way is the light, and and those who turn away from God is darkness, and that Christ is a challenge to the light. And in fact, he calls us to be light. In fact, right away in the Sermon on the Mount, let your eyes go over to chapter 5, verse 14, where Jesus is going to teach. This is the passage. You're the salt of the earth, verse 13. Verse 14 in chapter 5 of Matthew. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Christ is our light, and as Christ indwells us, we become light to a lost and dying world. And I want you to see here that Christ is going to hes going to invade the darkness of a lost part of the world, of a lost group of people in Galilee and Capernaum and Nazareth. But even as we look at that, I want you to see a little bit of a subplot that's going on in this passage. It's sort of hidden, but I want you to see that there are people in this section, in this passage, who will miss their window of opportunity. They will see the light or be challenged with the light, and they will, like so many do today, reject the light. The first thing that we see in our story, and in our passage, it's less a story and more just an unfolding of detail, is number one, we see a tragic imprisonment. A tragic imprisonment. Think about our man John the Baptist. We love this guy. He's the voice crying in the wilderness. He's the one who is the forerunner. He's the one who has come to proclaim and get the country ready... Straighten out the roads, fill in the low spots, pick up the trash, Messiah is coming, and now all of a sudden he's arrested. Notice how it begins on our account. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested. Now, interestingly enough, Matthew doesn't give us any detail about his arrest here, but if you flip to Matthew chapter 14, he does. Way back in Matthew 14, he's going to give us the details about how John was arrested. This arresting of John the Baptist seems to be a trigger. It's like, it's like flipping the valve and Jesus is going to move. And it's not that he's afraid of Herod, the Tetrarch, who is the one who has put John in jail. John wasn't afraid of him. You're going to see that in a second here in this passage. Jesus certainly wasn't afraid of him. But for some reason, moving out of the region of Judah and around Jerusalem, he moves then up into Nazareth, up into Galilee, up into Capernaum. We'll look at that in just a second. You need to just think in your mind. The reason is that as John preached, he offended people. The Pharisees didn't like it. The Sadducees didn't like it. Remember what he called them? You vipers. (laughs) He preached right in their face. And so they, they cooperated with Herod, putting him in jail. And Jesus knows that as the crowd gathers, as he does his works of miracles, that people are following him. What you kind of think is that Jesus moves up out of Jerusalem, out of the epicenter of the focal point of history, where he's going to go to the cross, getting away from the Pharisees, going out into the country, actually going up into the region of Gentiles, and there he's going to minister for over a year because God has a perfect timeline. And it's not time for him to stir the pot around Jerusalem. It would only take a matter of months and the Pharisees would be ready to hang him on a cross. And it's not time yet. And so part of what's happening here is that in this moment, as John is arrested and put in prison, Jesus hears about it. That's a little testimony to his humanity, isn't it? Isn't that kind of a funny phrase? And Jesus heard about John. And this is the one who spoke the worlds into existence. This is the omniscient King of Kings, our all-knowing Lord Jesus. But remember, Paul says in Philippians, how he laid aside... He limited the use of, of his role as the second member of the Godhead. And here in his humanity, he gets the news and the word is passed on. And I'm sure they're very concerned that John is in jail and we have this tragic imprisonment. Look at chapter 14 of Matthew. And here's where Matthew finally gets around to recording for us why, how John was put in prison and Why? At that time, he says in 14.1, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. You see, he's already taken care of John, and all of a sudden there's another John the Baptist drawing a crowd, and he's hearing about Jesus. He's like, I already took care of John. Who is this? John the Baptist must have come back from the dead. For Herod, here's the account, for Herod, going backwards in time, verse 3, for Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted and though he wanted to put John the Baptist to death, Herod feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. See, so see what happened? John just didn't keep his mouth shut. And Herod, the Tetrarch, the governor of the region who was appointed by Rome and was a Gentile, had a brother named Philip who had an unlawful wife that he had taken from someone else, and he was living in immorality with his wife, and John the Baptist points to the political leaders of the day and says, you're immoral and it's wrong. Do you know what that is? That's a little bit of light shining on the darkness. That's a little bit of truth in a world filled with falsehood. So you know what Herod does, he doesn't like the light. We just read in John 3 earlier as we entered our our service time and singing time that men are lovers of darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. So you know what Herod does? He puts John in jail. I'll shut you up. You want to talk about my brother and his, his unlawful wife and his immoral, illicit relationship with her? And you're touting that around the countryside and you're pointing your finger at us? I'll put you in jail and I'd like to whack your head off. But he knew that that would create an uprising in the street. But then what happens, and we'll eventually get to this and have a message on this passage. Verse 6, But when Herod's birthday came, The daughter of Herodias, the one that John the Baptist criticized publicly and confronted for her immorality. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and it pleased Herod. So that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king did it. We'll pick that up when we get there later. These people are brutal. These people hate the light. Here's a young girl in a half-drunken state of partying for Herod's birthday... He calls on Herodias' younger daughter to come and dance in front of the leering men that are there for the party. It pleases them so well. He calls her over, whispers in her ear, I'll give you anything she wants. She runs to her mom and says, Mom, he'll give me anything I want because he loved my dance so well here at the party. And she says, get the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now there's a mom for you. (laughs) Hey, picture a platter coming in, right? John the Baptist, yeah. And they laughed and they cursed and they pointed at that platter and they said, talk to us, John. Tell us who we're supposed to marry, John. And the window of opportunity for Herod and Herodias was completely ignored. Well, the next thing that we see back in Matthew chapter 4, not only do we have a a tragic imprisonment with Herod missing his window of opportunity, but the next thing we see is the strategic placement of our Lord Jesus for ministry. Strategic placement. Okay, so now it's kind of an interesting thing. And a lot of time goes by here. Jesus moves back and forth between these places. You can track it in Mark and John and, and guys with thick glasses sit around and read and try to figure out how long it took him to go where and so forth. And uh, But know that Jesus was then withdrew into Galilee. He wasn't afraid of getting his head cut off. He just knew it wasn't time yet for him to create a premature crisis. And so leaving Galilee area. He then goes to Nazareth, and then he leaves Nazareth, and he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. And when he in that in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now this is interesting. Now let's let's learn a little bit about what he did in Nazareth, because notice what it says in verse 13 that he left Nazareth before he went to Capernaum. Turn to Luke's gospel in chapter 4. Let me show you something quickly. Luke's gospel in chapter 4. And I want you to see what happens in Nazareth. And remember I told you we have a little subplot going on in this little passage of these windows of opportunity. All we read in Matthew's account and all he gives his Jewish readers is that Jesus leaves uh, the area of Galilee, goes down over to Nazareth, and he leaves Nazareth, Nazareth and goes to Capernaum. Now he did some miracles there. But one of the things that he did is recorded for us in Luke chapter 4, and notice if, if you have a Bible that has captions or headings above the passages, notice in Luke chapter 4, above verse 16, it says, Jesus rejected in Nazareth. This is that interesting story early in the ministry of Jesus, because this is his hometown. Remember, can a prophet is, is without honor in his hometown area. This is the region where Jesus grew up, and much of his life was spent, his young adult life, and it, and it was spent in this region of Galilee, in Nazareth, in this area. And it says, when he came to Nazareth, verse 16, Luke 4, where he had been brought up, see, this is where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. The young men used to take turns standing up to read the word of God. And so they had scrolls of the Pentateuch and of the prophets and of the Psalms. And they would open them and read them. He picks up and he reads Isaiah. And what he reads is, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, verse 18 is a direct quote, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now watch what happens. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And all the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You know what he's saying? He's saying, you've been studying Isaiah for years, looking for this one who's going to come and give you liberty, and I read to you today a story about me. I'm the one. Right before your very eyes, the light has come on. I'm shining the light to you. Shine, Jesus, shine right there. I'm telling you, I've fulfilled this right here before your eyes. If you read the passage, you know what they did? They take him out, they decide to say they want to throw him off a cliff. They get so upset that he claims to be the Messiah that the people in Nazareth say, you can't be that, and they want to throw him off a cliff. The window of opportunity, right there in front of them. This scripture is fulfilled. So we have this strategic placement of Jesus withdrawing, moving by God's timetable up into Galilee, leaving Nazareth, and then he goes to Capernaum by the sea. Now, what's this all about? The next thing we see in our passage is a prophetic fulfillment. A prophetic fulfillment, number three. He leaves Capernaum, he goes to Capernaum and lives there by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what has, was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Here it is, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Look at the way of the sea Beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Listen, these are all very precise, accurate, geographical locations that his Jewish audience knew exactly where he was talking. The people there dwell in darkness. See, their Galilee of the Gentiles. The Jews looked down on them. A bunch of half-breeds up there. Samaritans lived up there. Phoenicians lived up there. Syrians lived up there. Assyrians lived up there. People who were non-Jew. People who worshipped other religions. It's the northern part of the country. And it says, the people dwelling in darkness, they've seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, the Jews knew exactly what he was talking about. Up north, that's the region of the shadow of death. Those people don't... They don't believe in Moses, and they're not looking for Messiah, and they're not going to the temple. They're a bunch of pagans up there, and that's where Jesus goes. Let's go back in Israel's history. Before they lived here, this was the promised land. When we read in our Bibles, and we come out of Genesis, and we go into Exodus, where do the Israelites live? Where do they live? Egypt. Okay, it's way down south in the top of Africa. Remember, they got there because Joseph was taken into captivity. He had a connection then. He came up through Pharaoh's court and so forth. And then they had famine. And so they moved everybody down there. And remember in Genesis, we learned about a guy named Abram who who got his name changed to Abraham because God made a covenant with him. All right. And he had a wife, Sarai, who was named Sarah. And they had a child in their old age Abraham and Sarah have Isaac, right? And then Isaac gets a bride and he has two sons, and they are Esau and Jacob. And Jacob steals the birthright and blessing from Esau, right? All of Matthew's audience would know all of this. Ever since they were little children, they knew all about this stuff. They knew who Zebulun was. Some of you never heard that before. And Naphtali, they knew exactly who that was. They knew that Abraham had Isaac, who had Esau and Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons, and two of the 12 sons were Naphtali and Zebulun. And they knew exactly what happened. They knew what the region of Zebulun and Naphtali was because, because remember, Moses comes along. Israel has grown in number. It's what the book of Exodus is about. It's why it's called Exodus. Exit above the door. Exit, Exodus, go out, out of Egypt, all right? But they sinned in the wilderness, right? A couple million Jews with their leader, Moses, wandering around. They're heading here to the promised land. And God's going to clean out the land and give it to them. That's why it's called the promised land. God promised it to them. So oh, I never thought of that. It's the promised land because God promised it to them. And so they go, but they sinned. Remember, they grumbled. They didn't like the manna. They didn't like the quail. They didn't like not having water. Let us go back to Egypt. I want to go back to Egypt. And God said, I've had enough. Look out, Moses, I'm going to kill them all. And Moses intercedes, a type of Christ. No, don't kill them. They're your people. And then one day Moses gets so angry with the people, he disobeys God. He smashes the rock with his stick. And God said, I didn't tell you to do that. And because of their disobedience, God says, All right, Moses, here's the deal. They're coming up from the south here in the wilderness below the Dead Sea, and they're wandering around. And God says, Everybody who's 20 years and older, you got to die off before I let you get into the promised land. You can't come in. Okay? 20 years. So they spend 40 years for everybody who's in the generations of the 20 and up to die off, including Moses. And he goes up on the mountain and God gives him a peek. He lets him look down from the mountain on the promised land. I don't know what Moses was thinking. I know one thing he was thinking, that thought that we have an awful thought at times. I wish I hadn't sinned. I wish I hadn't disobeyed. God, take, Moses dies. God buries him there. Who's the next commander? Joshua. What does Joshua do? You know what Joshua does. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Why did Joshua fight the battle of Jericho? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho because it was time to enter the sea, enter the promised land, and they crossed the Jordan River into the promised land, and the first thing they find are these little city-states like Jericho and Ai, and they have to burn them out and wipe them out and take the land. When they finally took over and took control of the land, they entered in the middle, they went north and south, and conquered, quested the land. That's what the whole book of Joshua is about. Some of the most boring reading of your Bible you can ever find starts around Joshua chapter 19. To the end, it wasn't boring to Matthew's audience. They knew all about it. You know why it's boring? It's all about the division of the land to the tribes of Israel. You see, if you grew up in an Israelite home, you would know which one of the sons, which one of the 12 sons of Jacob from whose loins you sprang. You would know who your great-granddaddy was. And you would say, well, I'm of the tribe of Dan, or I'm of the tribe of Joseph, who had two sons, and they were named. Or you would say, I'm of Zebulun. And in Joshua chapter 19, when they divided up the land and they gave all of the tribes their portion of the land, the final instruction was, go possess the land, that's where your tribes can live, and wipe out all the pagans that are there. Get rid of them. But you know what they didn't do? They didn't wipe them out. And so back to our map here. If Zebulun and Naphtali all got this area up here. This is where they got their land divided. You follow me? Up here. Up above Galilee and including Galilee in there. That's where they got their portion of the land. All right. Back to Matthew. Back to Matthew chapter 4. And understanding our passage. Let's read it again. And so Jesus, leaving Nazareth, verse 13, lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Okay, so... 600 years before, Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would come from the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now, if you're Matthew's audience and you're Jewish, the first thing you say to yourself is, what is that all about? Why? Because you need to understand that that is, look at the Bible here at verse 15, where he says, Naphtali, the way of the sea. The way of the sea was a trade route where people came from the north, from Phoenicia and and parts north, and they cut through the top part of Israel on their way to Egypt. And so it was a trade route. That's what it means by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, and it's called Galilee of the Gentiles. That whole region was like a province named Galilee. Capernaum and Nazareth were cities inside a province named Galilee. were named after the lake or the sea, the ocean. It has multiple names. Tiberius, Genesaret, Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. It's the name of the sea. Okay? And look, these people dwell in darkness. They're from the region of the shadow of death. Okay, let's talk about that. Why is the region where where Naphtali and Zebulun settled up by Galilee? Why is that such a dark area? Partly because of the way of the sea, the trade route. So they had continual, they had continual trains of traders coming through, camel trains and donkey trains coming through traders that were transporting goods from north to south from Egypt and so what are they, they had cities up there and some of them never left So you got pagans from other countries who lived there. Backing up a little bit, when Zebulun and Naphtali got possession of the land, they never cleared the land to begin with. And so some of the pagans who lived there never got pushed out. And so their young people married them. So now you have half-breeds. And they're despised by, guess whom? All the holier-than-thous who live down by Jerusalem. That's where the real Jews live. That's where they go to the temple. Up north in Galilee, that's Hicksville. That's people who are inbred. That's people who are from all over. That's people who worship funny religions. And they're a mess up there. And they're, they're not very pure in their Jewish commitments. And those kids grow up without even knowing the, the, the Torah. They don't even know the writings of Moses. They don't know anything. So why would Messiah come from up there? Gonna, they even had an accent. When we go to the account later in the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus is on the cross, remember they identified Peter by his Galilean accent, didn't they? He was a fisherman of Galilee. I'm from Georgia. Where are you from? Atlanta. I don't do it very well. How about Wisconsin? I'm from Wisconsin, Wausau, Wisconsin. Right? You can tell people where they're from by their, their and they didn't like that. You know how we, you think... Uh, they're from, uh, they must be dumb because they talk with an accent. What a, what a stupid thing to say. You just aren't from there, that's all. And so they didn't look highly upon these people. And because of these trading trains, because of the um, other countries would come and attack the top of Israel and actually possess it. And they would take over and hold it for a while. Then the Jews would get it back and some of this would go back and forth. And so it was considered a land of darkness and it was considered a land of Gentiles. But what I want you to see is that this is part of prophetic fulfillment. That the word of God predicted that Jesus would come right from there. I want you to see something though about this. I want you to see that though this was prophetic fulfillment and the people of Capernaum... Live there. And that's where Jesus ministered. I want to show you something. Go to Matthew chapter 8 real quick. Just flip over a couple of pages to Matthew chapter 8. I want you to just glance your eyes down. I want you to see some things. Matthew chapter 8 verse 5. Here are some things that Matthew does say happened in Capernaum. Matthew 8 5. When he had entered Capernaum. See it? And there he healed the centurion's son. Okay, look at 8.14. He healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law in in Capernaum. Look at, in Mark's gospel, if you want to keep flipping, Matthew, Mark's gospel, chapter 1, where Mark gives us an account. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 21. And they went into, look what it says, 121 of Mark. They went into Capernaum. And what does he do? There he casts out demons from a wicked sick man. See that? Look at chapter 2. There Jesus heals a paralytic. Chapter 2, verse 1 of Mark. In Capernaum, you know this story really well. This is the one where the guys wanted to bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus to be healed, and they couldn't get in because of the crowd, so they went up on the roof and tore back the roof tiles and lowered him down right to Jesus. That all happened in Capernaum. Now it's very important for you to turn back to Matthew chapter 11. Now look at Matthew 11. All right? Matthew 11, and I want you to see that Jesus pronounces a judgment on some cities. Now, watch. He has been casting out demons, he has been healing the sick. They have stood there and watched a paralyzed man be lowered right into the room, and he heals them. But look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 23 And you, Capernaum, will, be exu- will you be exalted to heaven? It's a rhetorical question. No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Capernaum, right where he went, where it was prophesied. So not only do we have the fulfillment of Scripture but we have the condemnation of Christ upon Capernaum because they missed what? They missed their window of opportunity. They had Jesus right among them ministering And they rejected him to the degree that he said, You won't even be in heaven. If all these works that I've done, healing these people and doing all this stuff, had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would still exist today. I would not have rained fire down on them. But Capernaum was held to be more guilty than Sodom because Jesus was there exercising his power, showing his great works, and they rejected him. Window of opportunity. Window of opportunity. We have a tragic imprisonment, a strategic placement. We have this prophetic fulfillment and this dramatic development that Capernaum is condemned. Notice that the passage ends. From this time on, Jesus began to preach and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Hey, we've heard that before, haven't we? Chapter 3, John the Baptist, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In short, the reason that he said the kingdom of heaven is because a Jew... Would, and remember, he's writing to a Jewish audience, and they knew exactly what he was talking about. To the Jewish audience that Matthew was writing, they wouldn't have had to have a map. They wouldn't have had to have any of these explanations. They knew everything that we, he was talking about. And they knew exactly about Isaiah chapter 9 and the prophetic fulfillment. They also knew exactly what John the Baptist had been preaching. And they knew that, that you would never publicly out loud say the name of God. So you wouldn't say kingdom of God, because God's name is so holy, you shouldn't even say it out loud. That's how religious these Jews were. So instead of saying kingdom of God, they said kingdom of heaven. So there Jesus is shining his light. Now he's calling them to repent. It's a specific requirement to turn away from your sin, to receive the truth, to embrace the light. What do we get from a message like this, this transitory passage, this transition passage, into now the full-fledged public ministry of our Lord? He's identified geographically and prophetically where he's going to minister now, and the rest of Matthew will see the works of our Lord Jesus in a big way. In conclusion couple of lessons to jog our minds. Number one has to do with political corruption. Kind of caught my attention, John being put in prison for pointing out that the political leaders of the day were immoral slobs. And he didn't stay quiet about it. Instead, what they did was turn it into a hate crime and put him in prison when they shined the light upon him when John shined the light upon them. We might live in a day of significant political corruption. There is an appropriate way to speak out. Remember, we're not John the Baptist, but it doesn't mean we don't speak the truth in love. And they might put you in prison for hate crime, speech, hate speech, but we let our light shine. Secondly, there's this aspect of spiritual rejection that we see in this passage The word of God couldn't be any clearer with the prophetic fulfillment, and yet Capernaum shut him down and were condemned. The works of Christ couldn't have been any clearer in Nazareth or Capernaum, and they shut him down. They spiritually rejected Christ, and their window of opportunity closed. I think it's interesting then when Christ calls on them to repent, People make personal exception to repentance, don't they? And instead of repenting, they redefine their behavior. And they call what is bad and evil good. I'm not going to repent of this. There's nothing wrong with it. And we redefine sin into proper and right behavior, culturally acceptable. There are some lessons embedded here, not the least of which are these folks, Herod, Nazareth, Capernaum the Jews who Jesus calls to repentance, who miss their window of opportunity. How about you today? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you know that you have a sin problem, that Christ went to the cross on your behalf? Don't miss the window of opportunity. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for uh, the interesting passages here. And please help us to get a grip on it. Um, help us to kind of understand our geography and our history and... And then the teachings of Christ and how all of this comes together to turn the lights on to the reality of who Christ is and was and what he was preaching. Father, would you help us to have humble hearts and help us to be willing to repent of our sin, to turn away from our sin and to turn to righteousness, to walk in the truth, recognizing that you have sent a redeemer, one to clean us up, one to take our place, one to substitute in for us. He who knew no sin, that he would take our sin upon himself. And we who know no righteousness would be able to receive his righteousness by grace through faith. Help us to embrace this Messiah, this Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.